Good morning. Good morning, everyone. We are so excited to see each one of you here as we come together as God's people. Please stand and join us as we begin by singing our praises to God, as we open our hearts and our minds to receive all that he has to teach us today, and as we seek to glorify his name together. Please join us.
Father, we offer to you our highest praise. We know that you are good and merciful and loving and you're present with us. And we pray that during this time of worship, not only will we glorify you, but we will sense you working in our lives. Thank you for the privilege of coming together today. And um, we ask that Uh, You will give us hearts that are open to you as we worship. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to introduce yourself to someone this morning that you may not know as we greet each other. I think I know you, but nice to see you. How are you? Good. Good morning. Oh, nice. 
today. And uh, especially want to welcome uh, Houghton College students and Houghton Academy students uh, back. Some for the first time are here. Others are back having been here other years. And uh, we are excited to see you. And we look forward to a great year uh, for you and for all of us as the school year is getting underway. There are a couple things I want to highlight uh, in your bulletin. Tonight at 5 o'clock, you are all invited to a potluck slash picnic. Looks like the weather's going to be great, so we're going to have set up tables outside. We'll have a few inside as well. We are going to be grilling hot dogs, and uh, we'll we'll supply those and beverages. If you are able to bring a salad or a hot dish or dessert, that would be great. If you are a student, we don't expect you to bring anything. Just come, and we want to have a chance to fellowship, introduce ourselves to you, give you a chance to just connect with folks in a very low-key kind of way. So we hope that you will be here tonight at 5 o'clock, and we'll just kind of hang out and be around until we're ready to go home. So uh, we, uh, we hope to see you this afternoon, this evening at 5 o'clock uh, out back here in the community room area. Next Sunday morning, we begin our full worship service schedule with services 8.20, 9.40, and 11. And also Sunday school begins next week at 9.40, and there are classes for children, youth, and adults. And uh, we encourage you to uh, participate in that if you're able to do so. We uh, are all excited to uh, announce uh, another birth. In the life of our church, Nora Grace Silbert was born on Friday, and uh, we give thanks for the, this gift of new life. Uh, Nora did have some, some complications to her birth and uh, was flown to Buffalo Children's Hospital, and they are running some more tests there, and we're praying for uh, her full recovery, and everything will be fine. So I know that the Silberts would appreciate her prayers as well as celebrating with them in the gift of new life. We're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us as we give back to God from the ways in which he has blessed us.
medicina. Good morning. Following the scripture reading, children ages two to five may be dismissed for Children's Church. Today's scripture reading is found in Psalm chapter 51. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, that you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand with us as we sing. For every curse you're the cure for every sickness you're the healer for every storm you're the calm for all that's lost oh what a savior on that cross of calvary every
I want to make it clear right up front that this is a rhetorical question that I gave ready to ask you. What's the most heinous sin you have ever committed? What's the sin about which you are most ashamed? Feel, have felt the most amount of guilt and pain and struggle. I, I can ask that question because at some point, at some point in our lives, at some, some place in, in our existence, we have all committed sins that burden us and have caused shame upon us and have brought Tremendous guilt to us. And, and some things are, make us feel more shame and more guilt than other things. But we wrestle with this. And, and the question that confronts us in those moments and the question that is con- confronting us today is, what if anything do we do about it? When, when we've done this, when we've, when we've com- done something we know is wrong... The next question is, what do I do about what I just did? And in a sense, that's really what Psalm 51 is all about. And you'll notice the heading of this psalm. We don't often know what all the psalms are about. Most of them are written without us giving us any kind of contextual background. But this one is very clear. And it says right off the bat that this psalm is a psalm of David regarding that time that Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Maybe we would wish they hadn't have included the context of that psalm. You go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12, we find the story, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then in order to cover it up, he has her husband eventually murdered. And And this is the man that later on, God says, is a man after his own heart. Really? I suspect that when you were thinking about maybe the sin that made you feel most guilty, you're probably thinking, but it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Right? And what's interesting to me is when when you look at that story, after David does this, commits adultery and murder and a few other of the Ten Commandments he breaks in, in this event. 
the prophet Nathan is directed by God to go and confront David. And he says to David, this is you, you're the man. And out of that confrontation, David writes this psalm. A psalm of remorse. A psalm of, uh, that you can feel the agony of his heart and his spirit as he writes these words. Now what interests me is when I read this psalm, one of the things that intrigues me is that if you think back to the ancient culture, it's actually a little bit odd that a king would be all that concerned about what they do. I mean, a part of being the king is that you kind of get to do what you want. If, if you want to enslave these people and you have enough power, you do it. If you want to, to take that person, you take them. If you want to, to commit murder, you commit murder. I mean, there are parameters, but by and large, if, if you're the king, you can get away with a whole lot of stuff. And I think, I would guess, that in the nations around Israel, the kings do all kinds of things, and people may not like it, but there's not a whole lot they can do about it. This is the king. And yet here is David, the king of Israel, feeling guilt and shame and remorse, because being the king of Israel is not like being the king of anywhere else. The king of Israel answers to Yahweh. The king of Israel is concerned about ethics and morals and what is right and wrong and about sin. And some of them don't get it, but they're all held responsible for it. David just gets it. And the more I think about that, the more I realize that there are probably times when you and I have, we have amazing ways of creating reasons, excuses for what we do. Sometimes in our culture, society, we call it plausible deniability. Or we just simply say, I'm right, so if I'm right, then I have the, then I have the right to say what I want to say to that person because the truth outtrumps how I treat them. Or they treated me bad, so I have the right to treat them bad back. We have all kinds of ways for us to justify our behavior. And as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, we, we create all kinds of scenarios where, where we make it sound a lot less of a problem what we do. And David reminds us that it doesn't matter how many reasons we can come up with. The reality is sin is sin. And we have to come to grips with that. If it's wrong, it's wrong. I think one of the things we wrestle with when we talk about sin is that there is this perspective that sin is only a problem if God says it's a problem. It's only a sin if we call it a sin. And that's probably why we have created all kinds of of, uh, words, synonyms, uh, to mask what it really is. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter what you call it, sin is sin. And it's not sin because for some reason we have offended God. Because God has said, don't do that or I'm going to be upset with you because I don't like that. The reason it's sin and a problem is because it's always destructive. And the reason God says, don't do this, is because it hurts us. 
It leads us away from the source of life and joy and peace and all that we were created to experience. Look at the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. The minute they sin, they feel shame and remorse and they feel guilt. And and what do they do? They run and hide from God. Why do they do that? Because now their image of God has been skewed by their sin. And their image and their relationship with each other has been skewed and torn and twisted by their sin. That's why sin is a problem. That's why God warns us about it. It's not because we've offended his sensibilities. It's because he knows that doing this kind of stuff is going to destroy us and our relationships. And it's going to hurt all kinds of other people. And I think sometimes we justify sin because we say, well, that's just God's opinion. And this is my opinion and I'm just as right as anybody else is. And then we have to find all kinds of ways to... To make us feel not so guilty. And it's not just that it hurts us as much as it does. It hurts other people. Sin is always communal. None of us live in isolation. And the things that we do have an effect on other people. We sometimes think, well, it's just me, I'm in private. What I do in private is my own business. What I do out in public, that's different. But the reality is if it changes us, if it skews our view of God, if it draws us away from God, then it's going to change how we treat other people. Because we are going to become less concerned about how we treat them. We're much more apt to treat people with contempt, to take advantage of people, to hurt people. And we've all been on both sides of that. We've been the ones hurt and we've been the ones hurting. And no matter what we call it, it still hurts and it's still painful. And we've seen it all over the place. And the reason why God is so concerned about our sin is because he is the source of life. He is the source of joy and peace and all those things that deep inside we desperately want and As we sin, we keep cutting ourselves off from him, the source. And he's concerned about our sin because of the way it affects other people and how we hurt each other and we damage each other and we create a life of mistrust and distrust and pain and hurt. I mean, all we have to do is look around us. All the things going on in our Nation, in our world, in this town, in the towns around us, in our homes. And David is beginning to grasp that his sin, even though it felt very personal, is very communal. And as he begins to understand that, he pens this prayer. And this prayer is is really the beginning of this prayer of what, as you put it all together, is, is someone admitting they are a sinner and that they commit sins. It might be one of the most difficult things for people who are followers of Jesus to admit. We have, we, we tell each other and we've heard the message for a long time, if you're a Christian, then In a sense, we're saying, once you become a Christian, you don't sin. And we say, well, no, I don't believe that. Then why do we get so, why are we so surprised when we sin? 
And the problem is, we set ourselves up to be perfect. And then we're not perfect. And it creates even more hurt and more shame and more guilt and more pain. Now, I'm not saying that, okay, we're all sinners, so just do whatever you want, because that contradicts the whole point of not sinning. All I'm saying is we need to acknowledge that we struggle with sin. We need to acknowledge that we are all wrestling with sin. And yes, hopefully as we go along on our journey with Christ, we are less susceptible to the struggle of sin, but we all struggle with sin. Remember, David is called a man after God's own heart, and he struggles with some pretty big sin. But it's not just admitting and acknowledging that we are sinners who sin. There is a sense in which we need to confess and be honest about this particular sin. This thing we've done. It's not enough to to ask God to forgive us generally. We need the specificity of our confession. One of the things that, that I think was a mistake... There are are good things that came out of the Reformation, obviously, and there were correctives that were made. But one of the mistakes, I think, that was made was throwing out the confessional. Now, there needed to be some, some fixing of that. But the church fathers, centuries before, realized that we all need a place to confess our sins. We all need a place. We all need to come and say, I did it. It was me. And I need to be forgiven. The alternative to that is often secrecy. And secrecy is something that the evil one keeps whispering into our ears. Don't tell anyone that or they're really going to think less of you. You don't want to admit to that or it's going to be big problems. You're better off just keeping it secret. Besides, you know you're the only person that struggles with that. You're the only one who wrestles with this problem. And the truth is, we all wrestle with problems. And the secrecy doesn't make it better. It simply drives it deeper and deeper and deeper and makes the guilt and the shame that much more severe. Now, granted, there are, there are appropriate ways to confess and there are inappropriate ways to confess. I'm not saying we need to tell everybody everything about our lives, but there ought to be at least one person in our lives that we can come to and be honest with. Somebody who we can get things off our chest that we can acknowledge and we can admit. I remember when I was a child, I don't know, fourth grade, I think, fourth or fifth grade, that there was a, a young um, early 20s young man in our church that my dad was the pastor of in Ohio who was arrested for committing murder. And my dad went to visit him. It was a, it was a situation where he and some friends had, had been drinking. They went to rob a gas station and he ended up killing the gas station attendant. And my dad went to visit him in, in jail to... It, Three, four, five months after the event took place and they finally arrested him. And one of the first things he said to my dad was, I am so glad this is out in the open. Because holding, in, holding it in, keeping it secret was killing me. Despite the consequences of what he was about to face and did face, being able to confess it was freedom. Freedom. 
And I think one of the reasons that we continue to, to, to wrestle with and not feel a victorious life is because we don't confess to anyone. We have no one in our lives to say, this is, this is what I'm struggling with and I need you to support me and love me and help me. It's the way God created us as human beings in relationship and we need that. And David, because his sin is so public, confesses publicly. A lot of our sins aren't as public and we don't need to be as public about it. But there ought to be someone, a small group of people that we can come to and say, I blew it. Help me. A lot of people would say this was the genius of the, of the Methodist movement in, in England when John Wesley started it. He started these class meetings and bands, groups of dozen or so people who would get together every week. And, and in the bands who were a little more committed people, they would ask each other to go around the circle of the room and say, what joys, what victories have you had in your life this week that we can celebrate with you? And everyone would share, and that was the easy part. And then they would say, now what sins have you committed this week that you need to confess to the group so we can pray for you? And everyone would share their sins. And they'd pray for each other. And it was a safe place And people who've studied the movement said that's one of the reasons why it was so successful is because there was this openness. And in this openness, there was victory. And underlying this idea of admitting and confessing is the attitude of our hearts. I mean, we're not going to confess if if we're not truly repentant. If we really want to hang on to it, if we're not really repentant, not really sorry about what we did, then we're not going to tell anyone. We're going to hang on to it. But confessing and admitting is one of the ways in which the attitude of our heart gets revealed. And David says here, Lord, it's the attitude of the heart that you want. I can come to the temple. I can sacrifice a thousand animals on the altar. And that's not what you want. What you want is a broken, contrite heart. What you want is the right kind of attitude. It reminds me of what Paul says to the Corinthians in the first part of chapter 13 when he writes about love. And he says, if I, if I give my body to the flames, if I do all these amazing things, if, if, I, if I stun the world with how spiritual I, all the spiritual things that I do, but I don't have love in my heart, it's all meaningless, empty, nothing. And David is telling us that, you know, we, we can do, do all these spiritual things, but if our attitude, if the attitude of our heart is wrong, it doesn't mean anything. It's empty. It comes back to the attitude, the spirit within us. You know, in chapter, in Second Samuel 11, when David, uh, after he commits these sins, his, the question on his mind is, how can I cover my tracks? Now as we come to Psalm 51, he's saying, how in the world could I have ever treated God and other people like this? And you can see his spirit broken and contrite, and God can do something with that. And throughout this psalm, David, from beginning to end, is repenting. He is confessing. He's asking for God's grace and God's help over and over and over and over again from beginning to end. Not just once, not just twice. I think there are 20 petitions in this prayer if he's asking God to help him because he needs help. And he can't do it himself. 
But this psalm is not a means of David convincing God to forgive him. We don't come to God and say and beg God, God, I know you don't really want to, but do you think you could see it in your heart to forgive me? This psalm is is based on the premise that God loves to forgive. God doesn't forgive because we've repented. God forgives us. And repenting is simply accepting God's forgiveness. It's a huge difference. If we believe that God only forgives because we've repented, then we will spend our lives trying to convince God how worthy we are to be forgiven. God, look at all the great prayers I pray. Look at how many times I go to church. Look at all the Bible and scripture I read. Look at all the nice things I do for people. I'm pretty decent. I think you should forgive me. That makes God angry, to be honest with you. It is one of the great heresies of of humanity because it implies that God doesn't really want to forgive us. It implies that God withholds forgiveness until somehow we figure out the way to unlock it. Because the heart of God toward us is not forgiving, it's not loving, it's not compassionate. It's actually judgmental. And this is a problem because so many people in the world see God that way. And quite frankly, the reason people see God that way is because we, the church, have given them the impression that's what God is like. Because we, are, we so often withhold forgiveness. We so often give people the impression that we really don't want to forgive them. And we stand back with our arms crossed and say, okay, prove it to me. Prove to me you're sorry and then I'll think about forgiving you. And people think that's how God is. But God is the father in the story of the prodigal son with his arms wide open running to us. Saying, please, come to me. Let me forgive you. We aren't convincing God of anything. He's trying to convince us that he wants to forgive us. And David begins this psalm. The very first verse says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out my sins. The good news of the gospel is not... If we're good at it, if we find the right way to repent, God will forgive us. The good news of the gospel is God loves to forgive us. Will we accept it? And if if nothing else filters into your mind this morning, I hope that does. And then David tells us that when he begins to embrace God's forgiveness, when we begin to understand the heart of God who loves to forgive, then we find cleansing. All that guilt and shame, all that stuff that's been eating away at us and eroding our heart, it begins to dissipate. And we feel clean. And David says, when that happens, then I want to teach other people about who you are, God. I want my life to be a living witness So that other people will see what you've done for me and realize you can do that for them. 
I have a feeling that's not typically our attitude. We would be much happier to say, God, this is between you and me. You forgive me. I'll be clean. And let's act like nobody else ever has to know. And sometimes that's okay. But David is so desiring of what all that God wants to do for him. And he recognizes that that he can help other people. That he says, I'm going to teach other people through my own life. And when I read this psalm, it, it, it strikes me as kind of interesting that it's included in the hymn, hymn book of the Israelites. I mean, there are 150 psalms. They've got 150 hymns. If you, our hymnal has like 500. So it's a fairly small hymn book. And this is one of the hymns. I think if, if we were compiling this hymn book and the story was about us, we'd probably say, can't we find another one? Or maybe we, 149, that's a good number. Let's just leave it at that. We don't need 150. You know, or it's it's the night when we have the hymn sing. What do you guys want to do? I want Psalm 51. Really? Again? We have to go through that all over again? David's not worried about that because he realizes that if people begin to see what God does in his life and what God has done for him and and quite frankly, the depth of the heinous nature of his sins, then maybe people will say, God could do that for me. Yeah, yeah. And the healing that God does in us It's not as though we aren't left with some scars. Human nature is human nature. And when we hurt people, sometimes the damage is enough that it leaves scars. Every one of us are walking around with scars. I remember when I was in the... Junior high and shop class, and shop class was not my thing, believe me. You don't want me building you anything. Uh, and I remember we were doing these little carvings out of this special kind of wood, and we had these, you know, really sharp tools, and I was trying to finish it up. And I remember the, distinctly the teacher saying, When you use this tool, hold the block from behind, not in the front, as you're doing the tool. And I remember lunchtime one day, I was trying to hurry, get this thing finished. And I was in the room by myself. And of course, I'm doing this and I do it and it slipped and went, thing jabbed right into my finger right there. And I still have a scar right there on my arm, my hand. What's funny is I didn't want anyone to know that it happened. I was embarrassed. So I'm bleeding, you know, I'm trail of blood to the bathroom trying to clean it up. I'm sure they were wondering, what in the world is this? You know, we, we have scars. But the scars can also be a means of God's grace because he's the master of making beautiful things out of scars. And maybe our scars are an example to other people to say, look, you don't want this kind of scar. And it's an example of of maybe for ourselves to say, I'm thinking about that scar. Maybe I'll do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. And ultimately, David gets to the end of the psalm and he says, God, I realize that if my sin is communal, maybe forgiveness will be corporate too. And he says, when things get right here, 
then things get right with everybody else. And my relationship with other people and my, my role as a leader begins to change. And people begin to see things in a new light. And, and the whole worship in Israel begins to change. And we can now bring sacrifices. And you're pleased with that. And everybody else's life is affected a little bit by what you're doing in me. And the same thing is true of all of us. Because the closer we are to God and the more we live as forgiven people, the more apt we are to be people who forgive. The more we experience God's forgiveness in our hearts, our hearts get changed and shaped into the image of God and we begin to treat other people the way God treats them. And the more that happens, the environment just begins to change. You can't help it. There's a spirit of grace that begins to grow out of the environment of who we are. And a spirit of love and compassion and patience and forgiveness and understanding. And I think ultimately a deeper commitment to the truth. Because God is at work in us as individuals. In you and in me. So the reality is none of us are are so good that we never struggle with sin. And none of us are so bad that we can't be forgiven. Because ultimately, our lives are in the hands of the one who created us and loves us and is infinitely more patient and kind and compassionate and good and loving and forgiving than anybody else. Anybody else. I obviously have no idea what's in your heart this morning. I have no idea what you may have come today wrestling with something that's just happened, maybe something that's happened a while ago. But what a perfect time this morning to say to God, wash me, cleanse me. I see your love for me and I want to experience that anew. In this moment of silent meditation, If there is a prayer you need to pray to God, I invite you to pray it.
take a few moments to pray together and as we've been doing for a while when the altar is open maybe you want to come and pray for someone else maybe you want to come and pray for yourself or you just want to maybe you want to just confirm the prayers that have been in your heart this morning as we pray together those of you who want please come and join me as we pray around the altar Father, you hear our prayers. The ones we prayed in our hearts, in our minds, and the ones that we pray with our mouths. We pray that you will indeed forgive our sins, cleanse us, wash us, set us free from the burden and, and the guilt of the sin that we may be wrestling with today. And give us the assurance of your forgiveness. Father, we pray today, not only for ourselves, but for one another. We pray, Father, for all among us who are grieving and ask for your grace in their lives. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns and we pray that you will bring healing and mercy And your spirit to bear on each one. We pray especially for Nora this morning and ask that you would heal her little body. That she would be whole and that everything would be fine. And she would soon be home. Father, we pray for this world in which we live. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who who face opposition persecution, difficulty. We, we re, are reading stories in Myanmar, the flooding, and how some of the Christians are being deprived of help because they're Christians. We pray that you would give them grace to respond as you would. We pray that you would bring them the help that they need. Father, we pray for the work of West End Native Ministries, especially in New York State in Cataraugus and Eagle Life Center. We pray, Father, for 
for the Dudas and for the Seneses. We ask that you would bless their ministries and, and their work among Native Americans, that it would be fruitful beyond their wildest dreams. And Father, we ask that your grace would be at work in our lives, in this place, as we're beginning a new academic year. We pray for your mercy upon us and that it would truly be a year of sensing your spirit doing great things. Father, shine your light upon us. Fill us with your love and your compassion. Fill us, Father, with grace for each other and grace for our daily journey. Let your spirit of forgiveness and holiness and grace descend upon each of us. And we ask all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins and who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
the very first words of Psalm 51 begin, Have mercy on me, O God. It's the same Hebrew word that's used uh, in Numbers chapter 6 when Aaron pronounces a benediction on Israel and says, Be gracious unto you. So I want to ask God to bless you in the same way in which David asked God to bless him. May God bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.